So, we'll continue, and uh, last time we were on uh, was verse 4, I believe, no, we were on verse 3, and um, I had promised to go over two connected things, it's really the same topic uh, for two different aspects of it. I had said, uh, first of all, that materialism is a ridiculous philosophy, that it's unworthy of uh, a thinking person, and so I have to explain why, because there are lots of thinking people that are materialists, and I mean philosophical materialism, I'm not talking about uh, desire for material objects, that's a, uh, that's a desire of uh, the, the, uh, reg- the ordinary mind, desiring sense experience, but I mean philosophical materialism is a ridiculous philosophy, unworthy of the name philosophy. And connected to that, in fact, or that I, that I said in connection with the idea that this whole universe arises in my mind. Verse 3 said, in me alone the space of pure consciousness, the sky palace of the world arises. How then can I not be Brahman, all-knowing, the primal cause? So how can I say that this universe arises in me? <clears throat> so as I said, that's easily demonstrable from a purely scientific standpoint. Uh, and if you accept the uh, scientific analysis of experience, uh, then one has to accept this. One may not accept the conclusion that Advaita draws from it, but the Conclusion Advaita draws from it is the natural conclusion, the straightforward conclusion. What science says is that yes, this may be true, uh, but that's an undesirable conclusion that you come to. And so we have to again say that the world is out there, but our senses just represent it. So what do I mean by all of that? Taking the scientific view of experience. How do I see all of you in this room? Again, speaking scientifically, the modern science. Light falls on you, is reflected. Some of the light is reflected back. Some is absorbed and some is reflected. And the reflected light is what gives me a sense of color. I see the different colors, the reds and the greens and the blues and uh, the uh, facial complexions and all of that. So light comes. Uh, it hits my uh, eyes, it enters through the, uh, focused by the lens back on the retina, and in the retina there are cells that are light sensitive, and so they record the fact that light has hit them, and they're sensitive to different wavelengths of light, and so that is uh, recorded on the retina, uh, and the retina sends an encoded message through chemical and electrical uh, uh, pathways up to the visual center in the brain. And then in the brain, that is processed and gives me a picture of what I'm seeing. So as we all know, if we've studied any science, elementary science, there is no color in nature. Color is an interpretation of different wavelengths of light. Uh, A wavelength of light doesn't have color. The mind interprets a wavelength as a particular color. That's what the mind gives it. Now, what do I see with my eyes? What can I see with my eyes? You say you see people, you see chairs, you No. All I can see is color. I can't see anything else. That is an interpretation of light waves. That's all that I can see. I don't see matter. I see color. 
That's all that I can see. Light, darkness, everything, different shades of light and dark and colors. But colors, again, being interpretations of uh, wavelengths of light. The image that falls on my retina, it's not a picture, it's not like a ca ca the photograph that a camera produces that's produced on the retina, no. There's cells there that are interpreting the uh, wavelengths of uh, light. Uh, but that interpretation is, as you know, is upside down. What I see, on the re what's on the retina is upside down from what's supposedly out there. And the brain turns it right side up. So first of all, what I'm seeing from the retina is a reversed uh, image of what uh, falls on the retina. So that's an act of interpretation. In fact, the, you can have glasses so constructed that it turns what I'm seeing now upside down. So suddenly I put on these uh, uh, glasses so constructed that I see this whole room upside down. You're up there and the ceiling is uh, down below. And what happens? After a short time, the mind suddenly reverses. The mind compensates, realizing that it's not supposed to be upside down like that, and suddenly the world turns right side up again. So am I seeing you? No. What am I seeing? I'm seeing the mind's interpretation of you. The, image, the reaction in the retina from the light falling on the retina First of all, that's light. That's not you. That's, you're not on my retina. <laughs> the light coming from you is on my retina. But it's not a picture that's on my retina. It's uh, chemical uh, reactions uh, from the, uh, the, uh, the sensitive, uh, light-sensitive cells that are there. And then that information is sent in an encoded way. The picture is not sent. There's not a picture of you that's traveling along the optic nerve up to the brain. No, it's messages sent to the optic, uh, through the optic nerve to the brain. The brain reads in the visual center of the brain. It reads the, that, uh, those messages, and then it produces this that I'm seeing. What I'm seeing is a product of the brain. I'm not seeing you. There's no way that I can see you directly. There's no way that I can see matter. I see color, that's all that I see. I don't see matter. And color is the mind's interpretation of wavelengths of light. And so uh, what I'm seeing is something which is produced in the mind. I can't see you. You're not traveling through my optic nerve, I hope. <laughs> uh, I, uh, so what I'm seeing is mentally created. Touch, tactile sense. I say, I'm touching this table. It feels cool uh, and it's smooth. And I say, oh, I'm touching the table. I'm touching matter. Like uh, Dr. Johnson kicking the rock. This is hard, damn it. This is real. No, what is happening? The, the tactile senses or uh, sensors in the skin, they're receiving a, me a message, a message of pressure and of temperature, that's all, pressure and temperature. If I feel different textures, it's because of different pressures uh, within the different parts of what I'm touching that gives, this, uh, gives the sense of texture. That's sent along the nerves, not the table isn't sent along the nerves, a message is sent along the nerves, a message that if we could see the chemicals and electrical impulses, we wouldn't understand anything of what was going on. 
Uh, it's a, it's a, a purely a, uh, an encoded message that is sent along the nerves up to the tactile center in the brain. And then the brain says, you are touching something smooth and cool. So that if you put your hand on a hot stove, very hot stove, you pull your hand away before the message has even come to the brain because the has gone through the arc of reaction uh, that makes you pull your hand away. But if you, it has time to, by the time it gets to the brain, then you say, oh, I'm touching something that's very hot, that hurts. That also is produced in the brain. That's not what I'm feeling now, that's cool and smooth. That's my mental recreation. That's not the table. The table is not coming to my brain. All that I can feel is the brain's reaction to something coming out from outside. Uh, and so you see that everything that I experience through the ear, through sound, through sight, through taste, through smell, through the tactile sense, that's all the mind's recreation of information coming through the senses and traveling encoded messages up to the brain. And that's what I'm experiencing. And that's all that I can experience. I can't, cannot, in demonstrable uh, uh, terms, cannot experience the external world. I cannot. I can only experience my mind's interpretation of messages coming to it. And so all that I see, all that I experience, is the mind's recreation, not an external world. All that I see is in, within the mind. In traditional Vedanta, Vedantic epistemology, as you find in books like uh, Vedanta Paribhasha, Epistemology, for those who don't know the word epistemology, it means the, the science of knowing. How do we know? How do we know something? And so in Vedanta epistemology, they say that the mind goes out through the sense organs. They don't uh, say that light comes in to the, through the eyes and all of that. They say the mind goes out and takes the form of what it's seeing. Why? They said that, of course, at a time when they didn't have these modern scientific, they had science, and cavemen had science, but in the modern scientific terms, um, the modern scientific analysis of experience. So they, were, they didn't know about light falling on the retina and the retina being light sensitive and sending messages on the optic nerve up to the brain. But they said that the mind goes out through the eyes and takes the form of the world that we see. Why? Because that's what's happening. Not that the mind is going out through the eyes, but the world and the eyes themselves are in the mind. And so they, could, they saw through yogic sensitivity that everything in the universe seems to be a mental perception. Everything seems to be tinged by mentality, by mind. Uh, in the Yoga Vashishta, there's a beautiful verse that says, everywhere in the world, everything is mentation, everything is thought. Arising in the waves of the ocean and the sun and the sky, everywhere, there, everything is mental. That's because everything that I experience is mental. So now, if that is true, and so far science would say 100% that what you say is true, that's, the, that's according to the scientific analysis of experience. Now, if that is true, then one can doubt the pathways and the senses and the external world. Why? Because if all that I know, all that I see is mentally produced, where do I see my senses? Where do I see the, where do I find out about the pathways of the senses? Where do I find out about the light from the external world focusing, going through the lens, focusing on the retina, traveling up the optic nerve to the brain center? 
All of that is in my mind also, not outside. So then I can doubt the existence of an external world altogether. Why should I posit an external world? If the whole thing, all that I can know is in my mind, and even the ideas of the sense organs and pathways and this body and all of that, if even that is in my mind, why can't I doubt the whole thing, that there is such a thing as an external world? And that's actually what some schools of Vedanta does, and that's what Swami Vivekananda does. Now, Swamiji taught Vedanta in a way that ordinary people could understand. So he didn't draw out all of the conclusions, but this is what he says in several places in the complete works, where he says that all that I know is that there is an X which is somehow stimulating my mind. And so all of my experience is X plus Y. Y is produced by the mind, and X is some unknown something. And yes, that's true. That X, he says in one place, that that X is Brahman. He doesn't say it's an external world. He says that that X is Brahman. That that which is stimulating the, uh, the mind is the reality, the infinite reality. But the mind is stimulated to produce a world of diversity. So all that I see is a diverse world. Swamiji also says in a letter to Mrs. Bull, Mrs. Uh, Sarah Bull, when her father had died, he wrote a letter to console her. And that letter is read uh, oftentimes in our Western centers for memorial service for people who have passed away, connected to our Vedanta societies uh, because it's so beautiful. Uh, and it was written to console Mrs. Bull. So he says in there that all, all souls are at the same point. Everyone is in the same place, right at the same point. But each of us, each of us is right here in the same place. Everyone in the whole universe is right here, not out there. What the mind does, it projects a world of space outside of us. It, exp it expands a vision of space. But everybody is at the same point. Uh, and each of us is uh, projecting out this universe that, uh, that we see. And those of us who project a similar universe, we agree that, yes, this is a table, that's a harmonium, and so forth. But we're all at the same point. Swamiji so, mean, says, all souls are right here, right now. All that was, is, will be, is right here, right now. It's the, the mind projects things out in time and space. So, this all sounds very abstract, but it's real. It is abstract. A little difficult to understand, but the scientific analysis we can all understand. That's uh, easy to understand, that what I'm seeing is not an external world. What I'm seeing is produced in my own mind. Produced in my own mind. Now science, I said that science agrees with all of that, only they stop short of the conclusion Vedanta makes. Now science, uh, scientific philosophers and scientists who are reversed in this the, these particular ways of thinking in science say that, yes, but of course there is an external world and that's why you're seeing all of these things. Just because all of this is produced in the mind, they'll agree, yes it is. But uh, there is an external world which is what the mind is recreating. That what we're seeing is not the external world, but the mind is recreating the external world. The external world is what produces the sensations. And so what we're seeing is the real world uh, but just interpreted, just uh, recreated by the mind. And yes, of course, it adds color uh, and a few other things it adds, but basically we're just, the mind is recreating the perception of something that really is out there and the senses really are out there. 
but all I want you to understand for now is that that is an assumption. That's an assumption. You can agree with the scientist or you can disagree and say that, no, there's no reason to believe that there is an external world, a world external to me, that everything is in the mind, the world within the mind. Uh, or you can, again, say that the scientist is right, that there's a world that explains why my mind produces this. Accept either way, whatever's reasonable to you. Only accept those things that you can understand and which you believe to be true. Don't believe something because somebody tells you to, uh, even a swami. Uh, we can be fools also. <laughs> but at least understand that there is reason to doubt that there is an external world. And so what about matter? Hard, real, material stuff. You hit your hand hard enough and it hurts and you know that this is real because it hurts when I hit hard. Yes, no. Who has ever seen matter? You can't see matter. You see color. Who has felt matter? You can't feel matter. You feel pressure and temperature. That's all that you can feel. Who has heard matter? The vibrations of matter. You can't. You hear sounds. That's all that you can hear. You can taste tastes. You can smell smells. Why did the ancient seers come up with the five elements? Oh, they were ignorant. They were stupid. They lacked modern science. They didn't know anything. They didn't have the benefits that we have of our great modern science. No. It's because they analyzed the universe completely differently from the way we analyze it. In modern science, they wanted, took the external world for granted and began to analyze it, break it into bits, finer and finer pieces, finer and finer analysis until they got to atoms. The last ultimate pieces of matter, right? The indivisible atom, which is the ultimate uh, in the analysis of matter until they found they could break atoms also into subatomic particles. And they go on at CERN and other places uh, trying to find more and more subatomic particles and seeing what, if they can find out what subatomic particles are made out of. Uh, and so uh, science began by breaking this down into chemical elements and then the chemical elements into subatomic particles. But the ancient seers, they weren't interested in that. Science is interested in that and has been interested in that because they want to control nature. In uh, the Vedic tradition, they were interested in understanding what is this? What is this that we see? What is all of this? And so they saw that I see one thing. I see color. There are all types of colors, but it's one thing that I see. All that I can see is light, nothing but light. I hear one thing, sound, different types of sound, but it's all one thing, it's all sound. I smell nothing but smells. The nose can't understand anything but smells. The, does the nose smell anything other than a smell? No, it smells smells. The skin touches tact, the tactile sense. Uh, taste, tastes, tastes, nothing else. And so there are five elements. The essence of what I see, the essence of the, the essence of all light, the essence of all sound, the essence of all smell, the essence of all taste, the essence of all touch. The five, uh, the five elements were the essential nature of that which it is that I experience through the five senses. And each sense gives me the experience of something totally different. Light and sound are so different. 
I see and I hear totally different experiences. I touch a totally different experience from sight or sound. Taste and smell, those two are similar to each other, but totally different from the others. Different from each other, but more closely associated, associated than any of the other senses, but still different. And so, do I see matter? No. I only see color. Do I hear matter or the operations of matter? No, I only hear vibration. Do I touch matter? No, I only feel pressure and temperature, not matter. And so with the other senses. So no one has ever, will ever, can ever experience matter. You never experience matter. It's impossible to experience matter. Matter is a hypothesis to explain what it is that we experience. That's all that it is, is a hypothesis. Yes, it's a very effective hypothesis, which allows us to manipulate so-called matter. That is, it allows us to manipulate the so-called external world, to produce new things, new chemical combinations and so forth, the, the new uses of energy and so forth. Uh, but that's, uh, the, but well, we, that's all that matter is, is a hypothesis which explains our present experience from one standpoint. But even that is within the mind. Even that is in the mind. So you can experience nothing outside of your own mind. It's impossible. So again I ask, where do I see all of you? I see you within my mind. Where do you see all of the rest of us in this room? You see us within your mind. Nowhere else. So in me alone, the space of pure consciousness, the sky palace world arises. How then can I not be Brahman, all-knowing, the primal cause? And so again, the question comes, well, Swami, you, uh, you, the, world, the world, as much of the world as you see, that arises within your consciousness. But I, if I go outside while you're still inside, I'm seeing a different world. That's true, up to a point and up to a very limited point. But if we begin to understand that everyone is right here, that the, the extension into space is only a mental trick, then we begin to understand that no, every, uh, every, everyone is right here right now, everything is right here right now. As Swami Vivekananda says when he was speaking in America, he says, I am as much in London as I am here right now. I am as much in London as I am here. And he was speaking for each one of us. I'm as, I, Swami Apnarupananda, am as much in Houston as I am in Washington, D.C., this vision of uh, Washington, D.C. has come, uh, in, uh, come to me, but I haven't gone anywhere. I haven't moved. I'm still where I was, where I always have been. Visions are uh, unfolding in front of me. What does that mean? If I think that I am the body, then my body gets on a plane, it flies to Washington, D.C., and I've left Houston and so obviously I'm not in Houston, I'm in Washington, D.C. If I begin to think of myself as awareness, as consciousness, not as the body, but as consciousness, then I begin to see that I go nowhere. As consciousness, I go nowhere. My sense of moving is because this body moves in relationship to other things in the world. I see this body moving in relationship to other objects. But if I think of myself as awareness, I see that no, scenes are changing, but I go nowhere. I never move. I'm always in the same place. And that also Swami Vivekananda uh, says. He says uh, in his time, 
movie technology was just being invented. It had been invented during his time, but it was not yet uh, developed to show movies to people. So he didn't have the benefit for an example, Vedantic example of movies. So he used the example of a book. He said, the pages of life turn before me. I am where I always have been, and just page after page is turning before me. I go nowhere, but pages are turning. And so, in this, using the movies, uh, uh, the cinema example, it's more, uh, more living than the example he had available, and that the cinema of life is going on, but I'm in the same place I always have been. In the cinema, you sit... And in the movie, you're going to London and uh, uh, you're go, uh, going to South Africa and you go to India and you uh, go into outer space and uh, so many places you go. You haven't gone anywhere. You haven't gone anywhere. Just on the screen, all of these scenes are changing, but you haven't moved. You've all noticed in a movie how uh, uh, if uh, in the movie they, there's a car chase and uh, you're picturing it from inside the car that's, uh, that's moving quickly, or if you're in a roller coaster, it's even more uh, effective if the film is within a roller coaster and you're within the perspective of the roller coaster going around. When the roller coaster takes a sharp curve, you feel actually the swerving motion. And you feel when you go up like that, you suddenly feel weightless and like you're going down in a real roller coaster. But you haven't gone anywhere. You're still right there where you, where you were, sitting in the cinema. And just scenes are unfolding in front of you. And so the same is true here. It's because I think I'm the body that I see myself moving around. If I know that I'm not the body, if I'm awareness itself, I see things happening. Uh, but I'm the steady light which is illumining all of it. You know that there's a... They discovered this, I read about some years ago. They discovered that... If a probe is put in a particular point in the brain, we all know that the skull cap can be removed and a person, a subject, an experimental subject, can be awake and aware with their skull cap removed and then a, a, scientist can, a neuroscientist can stimulate different parts of the brain to see what reactions it produces in the person's mind. So the person is fully aware, skull cap is open and the brain is probed. They found that there's a certain point in the brain when stimulated with a probe that the perception of the body disappears completely. They see the room, they see the doctor, they see everything, but the perception of the body disappears. Now a scientist, because a scientist is committed to the reality of the external world, a scientist will say that yes, the perception of the body disappeared because of some chemical reaction and electro, uh, 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 electrical transfer and so forth and, and all of these. And so the Perception of the body disappears, but of course the body's there. I was looking at the body while I was giving the probe. But no, if the body were real, why should anything be able to make it disappear when you're still seeing the world? And that can happen to those who enter a very deep state of meditation. Sometimes with the eyes open, the body disappears. They see the world, and yet the body has disappeared. It's said of Purna, uh, the... Uh, disciple of Sri Ramakrishna, who was one of the six Ishwara Kotis, a great, great soul. He was the only one who didn't become a Swami. He was married, had children, but he was a great soul. It said that he had no consciousness below, below, uh, of the body below his uh, head, that he had the awareness of, uh, of the head, but no awareness of the rest of his body. Think about that. He lived and moved, did the things that we do, but had no awareness of uh, his physical body. So, 
again, coming back to the point, is the body real? Is the body primary? No, it's not. The only thing we know for sure is that I am and I know that I am. And if we pursue that, if we pursue that, then eventually we find that that is blessedness itself. That is reality itself. That this whole universe appears within me. In me alone, the space of pure consciousness, the space of pure consciousness, the sky palace of this world arises. How then can I not be Brahman, all-knowing, the primal cause? In the Mundaka Upanishad, there's a beautiful question. In the Upanishads, they're the most wonderful questions that were ever asked. No one has asked such great questions as are asked in the Upanishads. In the Mundaka Upanishad, near the, near the beginning, there's the question uh, uh, that kasminu bhagavo vignate sarvam idam vignatam bhavatiti. What is that by knowing which everything here becomes known? What is that one thing by knowing which everything here becomes known? What a strange question. What a strange question. How, could I, how is there one thing to know which would uh, let you know everything? That sounds ridiculous. And so in other places in the world that question was never asked. How could there be one thing to know which gives you the secret of everything? This also I promised I would uh, deal with. Uh, in the first session I told you that I would come back to this. Uh, and that is by knowing Brahman I know the reality of everything. Again, it doesn't mean that when I realize Brahman, suddenly I can speak Swahili, I can speak Chinese, I can speak Kasi, uh, I can, uh, I can uh, perform uh, a brain surgery. You better hope that I don't try. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't mean that I know all of the subjects that are taught in the university. No, it's not talking about information. Not talking about information. It's talking about reality. If the classic example given in the Upanishads and later of clay, if I know clay, then I know the possibility of clay to take on infinite forms. And whenever I see a form of clay, I recognize, oh, that's clay. It's taken on this form. It doesn't mean that I know all of the infinite forms that clay can take. No, that's impossible because they're endless. Even if you had 20 trillion forms of clay, uh, different forms, each one different from uh, another, all you need to do is to come by one of them and make a little mark in it with your fingernail and suddenly you have another one which wasn't there before. And so you can't know all of the forms of clay. But if you know clay, you know everything that's made of clay because you know what clay is. And when you see clay, you recognize this is clay. And so when we know Brahman, when we know pure consciousness, when we know reality itself, then we know everything because we know that which is the source of everything. Again, Swami Vivekananda said, as I quoted in the first session, that I have never in my life seen anything but God, nor have you. Everything that I see is that infinite reality taking on form. Once I've seen that, and I see this, I see this, I see this, I see this, I see that's another wave in the ocean of Brahman, nothing but a wave in the ocean of Brahman. Sri Ramakrishna saw everything in the universe as nothing but a wave in the ocean of consciousness. Sometimes he expressed it like pillows floating on the ocean, that is, uh, the forms, uh, but the pillows themselves would be made out of water, that is, the water just taking different forms, everything here. Uh, and uh, so, 
again, in me alone, the space of pure consciousness, the sky palace world arises. So uh, in verse 4, it says, Naswata pratyabhijnanan niramshatvanna chanyataha nachashraya vinashanme vinashasyadanashrayat This is saying that I'm indestructible. How am I indestructible? It's said in the Indian tradition of logic that there are three sources of destruction. One is self-destruction. That doesn't mean suicide, because to commit suicide you have to take something external to kill yourself. But it means that which destructs in itself, on its, and I'll come back to that in a moment. Uh, that's one type, self-destruction. Another is external destruction. Something external to me uh, destroys my life. Uh, then I'm destroyed by something external. A third is when the ashraya, that is the uh, substratum, uh, with the removal of substratum, the thing which is on the substratum is destroyed. So like if you take a piece of paper that has writing on it, you destroy the piece of paper, then the writing itself is destroyed because the writing is dependent on the piece of paper. It can't exist without uh, its uh, substratum. And so these types, three, three types of substratum. And so this verse says, pratyabhijnat swata nasyat. Due to recognition of the self, self-destruction is impossible. I can't destroy myself because I know myself. I know myself in timeless awareness, so I can't destroy myself. Because in, just as in the act of doubting, the, da the doubter is present. So in the doubt, act of doubting, I am proving my own existence. In the act of doubting myself, I'm there in the doubt, so I'm proving myself. In the act of trying to destroy myself, I am there knowing myself as awareness itself. I can't destroy myself because I know myself. And then niramshat, Anyatahacha niramshat nasyat. Because I have no parts, nothing external to, to me can destroy me. To destroy something, it has to have parts. You have to be able to reduce it into its parts. You have to be able to cut it into parts. You have to be able to sever something from within it or something. There have, has to be parts before you can destroy something. And I have no parts. I'm pure consciousness without parts, and so I can't be destroyed by anything external. An ashrayat, ashraya vinashat, me vinasha nasyat. And because I have no substratum, I am the substratum of everything. This whole universe appears in me. The unit, I am the substratum of everything. That was the basis of Swami Vivekananda's karma yoga. So yes, all, of the, all that I'm teaching today can be looked at from a devotional aspect also, but I'm presenting it in philosophical, non-dualistic, advaitic terms because that's the easiest way to get an intellectual understanding of it. And then you can convert it into devotion if you want to, if that's uh, the path that you want, which is the path of most people. But that was the, this idea that I am the substratum of everything. That was the basis of Swami Vivekananda's karma yoga. The worship of God in everything. Or the worship of self in everything. Because eventually self and God become the same. It's the same reality. So whether I like to think in terms of the beloved and worship God. As Swami Vivekananda says that I myself have divided myself 
into the individual self and the cosmic self, God. Where do I find God? I find God also in myself. If everything I know within consciousness, if I know God, where do I know God? Where do I experience God? Where do I real, realize God? In consciousness, in myself. And so whether I think of God as the divine object whom I seek with love and devotion, or whether I seek the self, I'm seeking the same thing. Both are good, both are true. One of the problems with non-dualism, Advaita, is that it often seems to reduce God, the beloved, to an imagination. Well, let me imagine God. Uh, the, the real truth is uh, the path of knowledge, but because I'm weak and uh, just an ordinary person, I'll have to imagine that there is a God and I'll worship God, but eventually I'll get over that delusion and then I'll realize myself and God will be gone. Well, no. <laughs> God and self are the same reality, equally real, equal, this, uh, the same reality, just seen from different standpoints. And uh, so, I am the substratum of all. That was the basis of Swamiji's karma yoga. Whether I see the self in all beings, again, because the further we go with this thinking, the less the self is anything personal, belonging to me as opposed to you. It's not myself, so stay away from it. You don't touch my Atman. If you'll leave my Atman alone, I'll leave your Atman alone. No, not like that. Uh, the, self is, uh, the self is the self of all. The whole universe arises in the self. This arises in the self, this arises in the self, everything arises in the self. And so the closer I come to that, the more the self becomes universal, not personal. Uh, and so I see the self in all. I see myself, yes, myself. I see myself in all. But that myself is also thyself, the self of God. Because subject and object, now I have the sense that I'm the subject seeing the object. And so if I'm devotional, I think that I'm the little subject and God is the divine object. And so I worship God because God is great and I'm small. If I follow the path of knowledge, I think that uh, I, am the, uh, I am the subject and the object has disappeared into the subject. And so only the subject remains. But the two are the same, the subject and the object. So whether I seek God or whether I seek the self, I'm seeking the same reality. So in karma yoga, I'm either worshipping God within everything or worshipping myself in everything. Aho aham namo mahyam dakshō nasti hamatsamaha as Ashtavakra says in the Ashtavakra Samhita. says, wonderful am I. Salutations to myself. Namo mahyam. Salutations to myself. Dakshō nastiha matsamaha. There's no one so capable as I. Who am supporting this whole universe without touching it with the body? This whole universe rests in me. I'm the support of the whole universe. But I don't touch it with the body. The whole universe rests within my consciousness. So as they say, moving right along. <laughs> Not moving right along so quickly, but uh, moving right along nonetheless. Let's see. Okay, we've got a little time left. The verse 5, I'll just read the English, uh, just to... Uh, each verse could be, we could spend time on each verse, but I'll, I won't spend time on this one. Verse 5 says, I, the sky of consciousness, 
cannot be dried, nor burnt, nor wet, nor cut, even by real wind, fire, water, and weapons, what to speak of imagined ones. So this is like the Gita in chapter 2, where Sri Krishna says uh, the uh, same thing in the second chapter of the Gita, that uh, nothing can cut me, nothing can dry me, nothing can wet me, etc., because I'm beyond all of them. But here it says, even real water, fire, and weapons cannot touch me. What to speak of imagined ones? What does that mean? Even real cannot touch me because I'm pure consciousness. What to speak of imagined ones? Because those real fire, water, weapons, etc. are imagined. It's the same thing. But even if you say that, well, I'll bring real fire and show you that I can burn you. Yes, you can burn my body. And I may scream out because I'm a fool. I still think the body is me. I'm still identified with it. But that's because of my foolishness. And at least I know that I'm foolish. That I shouldn't but I'm so weak that I do. <laughs> Verse uh, 6. Abharupasya vishwasya bhanam bhasan nidhervina kodachinna vakalpeta bhachaham tenas sarvagaha Abharupasya vishwasya of the world which by nature is non-shining, that is, the world is not conscious. Now in Vedanta, we sometimes take a provisional attitude for understanding. And then there's a higher realization. And so, in Vedanta, a very important step in understanding Vedanta, a very important step in understanding consciousness, is to divide, make a division, a sharp division between uh, consciousness and the insentient, the unconscious so that we understand what consciousness is. And so anything that can be experienced as an object is by definition in Vedanta, is by definition material, is insentient. And so I see this body. I'm conscious of my own body, and so I can't be the body. If I were the body, I couldn't look at it, but I can see the body. It's an object. So the body is matter. Matter in Vedanta means something very different. And Vedanta, uh, matter in all schools of Indian thought, means some, something very different from the modern scientific definition of matter. Matter in the Indian tradition means anything that can be objectified, anything that can be observed by consciousness. That includes thoughts. That also is matter. It includes energy which is not matter, uh, the, there's an equivalence between matter and energy, as E equals mc squared shows, but they're two, two different states of the same uh, underlying thing. Uh, but in Vedanta, everything that can be objectified is material. And so I see all of this, this is matter. I see my body, this also is part of the ocean of matter. I can see my thoughts, thoughts arising, images in the mind, memories, emotions, I can feel my emotions. Meaning I can see them. It doesn't mean seeing with the eyes. It means experiencing them. I can feel my emotions. All of the, that is material. All of that is objective. It's not conscious. It's the object of consciousness. So anything that can be perceived is matter. And consciousness is the sole perceiver, the unperceived, the unseen seer, the unperceived uh, perceiver. So consciousness is that. So we make the strict division between subject and object. Everything that can be seen as an object is material, and I am consciousness. And in that way, we begin to get an idea of what consciousness itself means. Consciousness as a reality, not consciousness mixed up with thinking. Conscious thought, which in the West is what consciousness means, conscious processes. Conscious thought 
is that part of the mental activity which is being illuminated by uh, my consciousness. That's what conscious thought is. But thought itself is not conscious, it's material. It's, but that the thought, when I'm aware of it, uh, then it becomes conscious because I am conscious of it. I'm perceiving it. That's what makes it conscious. So, I make a strong distinction between consciousness and, and everything else. And so I try to identify with consciousness. But eventually, I find that that was a false dichotomy. It was necessary in order to understand consciousness. But eventually I find that everything that is objective, everything that can be perceived, is itself just a wave in the ocean of consciousness. Everything is nothing but a modification of consciousness, as Sri Ramakrishna used to see. He came to the end of his doing uh, puja in the Kali temple at Dakshineshwar, when he came to the point where he saw consciousness everywhere. He could no longer distinguish between the Divine Mother and the objects and the articles of worship, the puja basan, the vessels that he did worship with. He could no longer distinguish between a prostitute who came to the door of the temple to look in and the Divine Mother herself. He couldn't distinguish between himself and the Divine Mother, so he would eat the food for the Divine Mother. He would offer the flowers for the Divine Mother to himself. He could make no distinction. He saw nothing but consciousness everywhere. The vessels, uh, the image, the temple building, the floor, the ceiling, everything was the same consciousness. So eventually, that's where we want to go. That, of course, is a very high state where we see everything is just consciousness. So, coming back uh, to this uh, verse, which is speaking about that distinction between consciousness and everything unconscious. So, abha-rupasya vishwasya, of the world which by nature is unshining, that is, that which is insentient, not conscious. Bha-sannidhe bina, without the proximity of consciousness, bhanam kadachi na akalpeta, shining is not possible. So without the proximity of consciousness, uh, nothing can shine, nothing can, uh, nothing can shine, nothing can uh, uh, illuminate that without consciousness, this whole universe disappears. Well, let me finish the verse. It's a little complicated, but uh, like all of the verses have been, this one also is a little complicated, but I'll get to the end of it, uh, the, the simple explanation, uh, and then come back to a more complicated explanation. <laughs> so, aham cha bha tena sarvagaha. Uh, and uh, uh, I am a consciousness, and therefore I am all-pervading. The running tr translation that I gave is, the world which is non-conscious by nature, that is a, the, an object of consciousness, the world which is non-conscious by nature would remain unknown without the presence of consciousness. I, who am consciousness itself, am therefore all-pervading. I am consciousness itself. That the world is unconscious by nature, but the unconscious without consciousness doesn't exist. That which is unconscious without the presence of consciousness, it doesn't exist. You may say, well, Swami, and look, look through the telescope, you'll see that there are galaxies where no one has ever gone, no one has ever seen. There are planets that are being discovered where there's no life. Those exist and nobody knew about them until you looked through the telescope and saw them. Uh, and so that's ridiculous. No, there are two explanations for that. The common sense explanation, the spiritual common sense explanation, which is what most people take, is uh, 
that there is the cosmic mind, Brahma, the creator, in whom this whole universe rests. And so the whole universe is resting in the awareness of Brahma. This universe is the dream of Brahma, and we are dreaming our individual dreams in the dream of Brahma. He dreams the whole universe, including us, into being, and we dream our individual dreams within that. And so the distant worlds where there's no individual being to witness them, they also are being perceived. They're resting in the mind of Brahma. They're part of the mind of Brahma. Uh, because nothing can exist without consciousness. Try to think of something that, uh, where there's no awareness of its existence. No one, no mouse knows about it, no bacterium knows about it, no form of life knows about it. How would you know that it exists? Only consciousness reveals existence. Unconsciousness reveals nothing. And so the old question, philosophical question, if a tree were to fall in the forest and no one were there to hear it, would there be a sound? Well, there might be because there are mice and chipmunks and squirrels and uh, other things to hear the sound. But if there's no consciousness, and the tree itself uh, is conscious, uh, unless it's uh, dead, well, of course, if it's falling over, it's probably dead uh, or dying. Uh, but other trees might uh, perceive through vibration or other means, however trees perceive. But if there were no consciousness, no awareness, then what type of existence would that be? It wouldn't be existence. It wouldn't exist. Consciousness alone reveals existence. Only where there's consciousness is there existence. So again, the common sense spiritual view, which most Vedantins adhere to, uh, because not many want to be accused of being uh, nonsensical Vedantists, is that there's the uh, cosmic mind of Brahma in which the whole universe rests. And so the universe exists because Brahma is imagining it into being thinking it into being, perceiving it into being. The other view, which is stressed more in this book and in some more extreme books of uh, Vedanta, which again, you don't have to accept, you shouldn't, we have to find a standpoint that we can understand and practice, but it's good sometimes to understand something which is beyond our capacity, just to know that it's there. So the standpoint here is that that which is outside of consciousness doesn't exist, yes, that's true. But all that I know is the world within my mind. So beyond that, I can't posit anything. The whole world appears within my mind. Read the teachings of someone like Ramana Maharshi. Now, Sri Ramakrishna usually didn't teach in this way because he was concerned with practical spirituality. But Swami Vivekananda sometimes did. He also was concerned with practical spirituality, so he often taught a more commonsensical view of spirituality, but sometimes he went to these links also. But if you go to someone like Ramana Maharshi, who uh, uh, this was the sort of experience, this was his path to realization, and so it's what he always taught. When people would come to him and say, sir, I want to do good to the world. He would say, first find out who you are, and then see if there is a world to help. Find out who you are, and then see if there's a world to help. The implication being that then you find there isn't a world that uh, needs your help. Now you say, well, Swami Vivekananda told us to go out into the world and help others. No, that's not what Swamiji said. Swamiji said in Karma Yoga, it's been edited out. I, try, I put it back in. I don't know if it'll survive the present editors. 
Uh, but Swamiji says in the, uh, the published version of Karma Yoga, it has Swamiji saying that take this idea of helping the world out of your mind. What Swamiji really said was this idea of helping the world thrash it out of your mind. This idea of helping the world thrash it out of your mind. We can't help anybody. We can worship. And why should I worship? Because it's my nature. When I see beauty, when I see uh, magnificence, when I see the glory of the self, when I see the glory of God shining in everything, even in my imagination, even if I'm just convinced that that's the truth and I imagine it, then I want to worship. I want to worship. So that was the basis of his karma yoga, not helping people. Uh, uh, he said, take this idea of helping people and thrash it out of the mind. He said in many places in karma yoga, you can't help the world. You only help yourself. That's not a selfish statement. That's the opposite. So, again, this, this is uh, the idea that uh, the world exists within my own mind. And where there is no consciousness, there is no existence. So the world which is non-conscious by nature, verse 6, would remain unknown without the presence of consciousness. And if unknown, it's non-existent. If unknown, it's non-existent. I, who am consciousness itself, am therefore all-pervading. Because the whole world of my perception, if I look through the telescope and see distant galaxies for the first time, then it's my awareness that's illumining uh, all of that. And in that, it has uh, existence. Uh, so again, that, this latter position is an extreme position, so I'm not recommending that people take it up. Uh, but it is sometimes good to understand that that position is there. Just as Swamiji sometimes said, he would go sometimes to extremes in teaching and said, it's good that the pe you people of this country, when speaking in America, know that these things exist. And why is it good to know that this exists? One reason, I'll say briefly, uh, that uh, is that we're used to giving primacy to the external world. I'm a good person. Why? Do I think, I, well, might I think that I'm a good person? Because people tell me I'm a good person. I'm a bad person. Why do I think I'm a bad person? Because people tell me, oh, you're bad. I think I'm popular. Why? Because people tell me, oh, you're so wonderful. I think I'm unpopular. Why? Because people say, oh, you're worthless. Nobody cares about you. I think I'm talented. Why? Because people say, oh, you're so talented. I think I'm untalented. Why? People tell me I'm untalented. My whole sense of personal value, the sense of who I am, Everything is dependent on the external world, what the external world tells me. When I go to sleep, the whole world disappears. But I think that, no, the world didn't disappear. I disappeared from the world. I fell asleep, and the world was there. Everything was as normal, but I just fell asleep and didn't know about it. Well, no. From my standpoint, the world disappears. And that also is coming versus uh, state. That also proves that the world doesn't exist. The world is not real in itself. If anything in me can negate the world, then how can I say that the world exists? In sleep I'm still aware, and yet the world doesn't exist. This body is gone, this personality is gone, I have a dream personality. How can the world disappear if the world is real? You say, well, happened, Swami, so it must be a way for it to happen. That's because we don't have a sense of reality. We don't know what re reality means. Vedanta says that that alone is real 
that can never be sublated, which can never be which is made to disappear in any way. You say, well, Vedanta can say whatever it wants to. That's ridiculous, Swami. Let, uh, let Vedanta say what it wants to. Uh, what Vedanta does is it just defines the reality in whatever way it wants to, and then it says that everything that we think is real is unreal. But that's just a matter of definition. No, it's not a matter of definition. It's a matter of perception. If we begin even uh, to get a glimpse of this, people like us who are just understanding a little bit of this, just getting a glimpse of the un under simple understanding of it, if we get that, we begin to see that no, that which is real must be that which uh, cannot be sublated, that which doesn't disappear. Something that comes and then disappears, it can't be real. As he says in coming verses, again, I'm not going to have time to go through uh, much more. He says in coming verses that uh, in uh, uh, dream, in the three, uh, this, uh, dream and uh, dreamless uh, sleep, uh, and then the waking state, these different states come and go. But I remain as the witness of all of them. And so I have a reality which these states don't. If I begin to look at dream and deep sleep from the inside, subjectively, then I begin to see that the waking state also is just another state of mind. If it's a state, it's not inherently real. It's a state of mind that when my... When I'm in a certain state of mind, I see the waking world. In another state of mind, I see the dream world. In another state of mind, all worlds disappear, and I'm just in the cloud of primordial ignorance, ajnana, the cloud of primordial ignorance, deep sleep. And then again, this waking world appears. And so we're so used to taking the external world as real that my sense of value, my sense of who I am, my sense of reality... Uh, my sense of goodness and badness, everything is taken from the ex external world. No, we should learn to value the internal world. Now, many people uh, will say, uh, in the West and elsewhere, will say that we'll know, because the internal world is untrustworthy. Only that the external world is the world where we verify things. That's where we know what is true and not true because it corresponds to the larger experience of the external world. The subjective world is subject to imagination and fantasy and insan insanity and emotionality, sentimentality, all types of errors and so forth. Yes, the mind is subject to those things. But the real internal world, which is beyond the mind, that's not subject to any of that. And so if we begin to get a feeling for that, if we try to go to that, then we, we're going towards that which is stable, that which is real, and that which gives reality to everything else. Again, this verse says, the world which is non-conscious by nature would remain unknown without the presence of consciousness. I, who am consciousness itself, am therefore all-pervading. Uh, and so it's I who give reality to the world. That is, not I, Swami Atmarupananda, but I as consciousness. In verse 7, he continues the thought, Nohi bhāna drite sattvam narte bhānam chito chitaha chitsambandho pinādhyāsā drite te nāhamadvayaha bhāna drite, without shining, sattvam nahi asyat, there would be no existence. Chitrite atita Bhanam nasyat. Without consciousness, uh, the, the insentient doesn't shine. 
again, I'll come back and explain all of this. Adhyasadrite, without superimposition, a technical term. Chitsambandha, the connection with consciousness, api nasyat, the connection with consciousness would not exist. Tena aham advaya asmi, therefore I am non, the non-dual reality. Without shining, there is no existence. Without consciousness, the insentient doesn't shine. Without superimposition, there is no connection with consciousness. Therefore, I am a non-dual reality. So without shining, again, let me come back to shining. I talked about that in the first session. That sadabhami, always I shine. So what does shining mean? As I said, it means illumining consciousness. But as said in Vedanta, as I said in the first session also, that reality is sat-chit-ananda, existence, consciousness, bliss. And that manifests as asti-bhati-priya, as being, everything here has being. Everything that we see has being. We say that, oh, the chair is. Uh, a gentleman is sitting back there. The lady is sitting over there. Uh, the, uh, the light is on, or the light is off. Everything we say in terms of is, asti. And we say bhati. Bhati means shining. How do I know that there's a chair there? Because within my awareness, the chair shines. Shining in Vedanta means manifesting to consciousness, the ability to manifest to consciousness. I see you, why? Because you manifest within my consciousness. I see the harmonium, how? Because the harmonium is bhati. It shines within my consciousness. It manifests within my consciousness. Turn out all of the lights and block the windows and everything is dark. The darkness shines in my consciousness. The darkness, I am aware of the darkness. It shines within my consciousness. So bhati means to manifest to consciousness. So without shining, there is no existence. That which doesn't shine, it doesn't make itself known to consciousness. It doesn't exist. It exists by the very fact that it is manifesting within consciousness. That's the only way something exists. It's manifesting within consciousness. Without consciousness, the insentient does not shine. The chair, which to all ordinary perception is insentient, that is, it's unconscious. The chair is not a living being, it's unconscious. But it is consciousness which makes the chair appear to me. The, the chair appears within my consciousness. Without consciousness, the chair disappears. So the insentient doesn't shine. Without consciousness, the insentient doesn't shine. It's consciousness which illumines the insentient. Without superimposition, there's no connection with consciousness. Superimposition means taking one thing for something which it's not. That is, taking uh, the chair, uh, or taking Brahman for a chair, taking Brahman for a harmonium, taking Brahman for the audience, taking Brahman for this uh, building. That's all superimposition, like superimposing the, ro- the snake on the rope. I almost said superimposing the rope on the snake. That happens also. That's happened to me and uh, maybe to some of you where you see a snake, but you think it's a rope. <laughs> that also happens. That's more dangerous. <laughs> so the, the, uh, without superimposition, there is no connection with consciousness. It's superimposition, which is the connection with the, between the insentient and the sentient, between the unconscious and the conscious. But then eventually we see that nothing exists but consciousness. So the chair is shining within my consciousness because it's a form of consciousness. It's a wave within the ocean of consciousness. And therefore, I am non-dual. I am non-dual because 
It's consciousness alone which gives existence to everything. And I am consciousness itself. As Schrodinger said, consciousness is always in the singular. There is no plural consciousness. There are plural minds, plural thinking, but singular consciousness. So time is almost up, so let me save time for... I'll do one other quick verse and then the questions. So start thinking, don't listen to what I'm saying now, think of questions. And uh, uh, when I'm over, you can ask it. So verse 16 is especially, uh, I'm very fond of it because it's a uh, paradoxical verse. Na prakashe hamit yuktir yat prakasha nibandhana svaprakasham tamatmanam aprakasha katham sprushet. Aham na prakashe. I don't know. I don't know something. I, I, I don't know a particular thing. Ukti, yat prakasha nibandhana, uh, the saying that I don't know anything, that has consciousness for its basis. I say, you say, Swami, do you know uh, Swahili? And I say, no. I, one time I knew how to say hello and how are you in Swahili, but I've forgotten that. Even that I've forgotten now. So I don't know Swahili. I've said I don't know something. And a statement of ignorance. No. It's a statement of knowledge. Because I'm stating I don't know, meaning I know that I don't know. I'm aware that I don't know. I'm making a statement of awareness. I don't know. So it goes on to say, Katham aprakasha tam svaprakasham atmanam sprashet. Then how can non-illumination, how can ignorance uh, touch the self-luminous Atman? If even in my statements of ignorance, I'm expressing illumination, then how can uh, the lack of illumination touch me, the self-luminous Atman? If even I say, oh, I'm lost in the uh, darkness of ignorance, that's a statement of knowledge. And so how can I be lost in ignorance if, I, if every statement that I can possibly make is a statement of illumination? So the beautiful verse. I don't know. Such statements have as their foundation illumination. How then can ignorance affect that self-luminous self? It can't. It can't. Because even in my statements of ignorance, I'm expressing illumination. I'm expressing what I know. So... Uh, Again, there are many uh, beautiful verses that we didn't uh, get to. Uh, the whole book, if, you, if one is interested, it's, uh, by studying this uh, text, you'll have a, a clear grasp of the essentials of non-dualistic Vedanta. From the standpoint, again, of the high non-dual Vedanta, that is the uh, pure self-knowledge part. Tomorrow I'm going to speak on when the self meets God uh, because I want to bring uh, uh, in the devotional idea also. I won't be speaking about this, but I will be speaking about some of the ideas we've discussed and relating them to the devotional path because we, and this was another thing I promised to one of you that I would talk about uh, before closing, and so I, uh, I did promise I would speak about it and I should speak about it. So instead of taking the question, uh, questions immediately if there are any, let me say this, because it's uh, too important to let it go. That in spiritual life, we have to, our spiritual life has to be an intensely practical life. 
Spiritual life can't be impractical. It can't be just imagination and spinning out philosophical theories and, oh, Advaita is so interesting, it tickles my brain and uh, I just love to think about it because I love to think about it and everything. No. We have to take a stance in spiritual life that we can understand, a stance that we can practice, something that we can put into daily practice, something that we can meditate on, something that we can hold on to, something that we can have faith in, something that makes sense to us. And so in spiritual life, things like this, if it makes sense to you and you see the way to practice it, or if you think you can and you want to try it, then do it. Uh, because it is immensely practical. If you can see the way to make it practica practicable, it's meant for practice, not meant for tickling the brain. It's meant for changing your whole perception, your whole way of thinking, your way of perceiving the world and perceiving yourself. But... Admittedly, it's abstruse and for many people very difficult, uh, and so it's not going to do that. So then what is the value of even bringing up the topic of Advaita Makaranda? Well, one practicality is there may be a handful of you here who, for whom it is practical and you like the path of knowledge, and so there's that practicality. But that's not enough. There may be just a handful of people who actually want to practice something like this, or maybe just one or two. For the rest of us, why did Sri Ramakrishna take Swami Vivekananda or his Naran apart from everyone else and teach him the Ashtavakra Samhita and he wouldn't let other people touch the Advaita Samhita? And then Swamiji came to America and he taught it openly to everyone. He was teaching the Avadhuta Gita uh, to people at Greenacre uh, in Maine. Uh, men and women, uh, ordinary people, very ordinary people. They weren't high-level spiritual aspirants. He said, he wrote back to India, I'm teaching people to say, Soham, Soham, I am he, I am he. The Avatuta Gita begins with the first uh, verse, Ishwara Nugraha Deva, Pumsam Advaita Vasana. By the grace of God alone, one has the desire for non-dualism. By the grace of God alone. And that's the last mention of God in the whole book. Last mention of God. Nothing about God, nothing about prayer, nothing about worship. Just, I am the reality. I, why, do you, why do you weep? You who are the infinite, why do you weep? And so on it goes, talking the highest self-knowledge. So Sri Ramakrishna took Narendra apart and taught him Ashtavakra secretly and didn't let other people touch the book. Swamiji taught it to everybody. That was one of the several reasons why many of the disciples, householder and monastic, uh, thought that Swamiji was departing from Sri Ramakrishna's teaching. He was teaching Vedanta. That's not what Sri Ramakrishna taught. Why did he teach that? He's not teaching Vedanta. It was because of the Holy Mother, uh, largely because of Holy Mother. She said that it's Sri Ramakrishna who is speaking through Swamiji. It says uh, Sri Ramakrishna himself who is making uh, Narayan speak the way he does. Whatever Narayan is uh, saying, that's, those are the words of Sri Ramakrishna himself. And so we're left with this paradox that Sri Ramakrishna did one way, Swamiji did another way. So why? Well, the full story, we'd have to ask Sri Ramakrishna and Swami Vivekananda. Uh, but uh, we can understand some reason why by thinking about it. And that is, for one thing, Swamiji saw, saw that in the modern world, you can't hide anything from anyone. Go to any metaphysical bookstore and you'll find books on all traditions from all over the world, from the highest to the lowest, 
from the most abstruse non-dualistic philosophy down to ordinary magic and witchcraft and things like that. Everything is available to everyone, so you can't hide anything from anyone. But Swamiji saw something, something else. He saw that the teaching that people are weak and are uh, dependent and people have to be protected from knowing too much because they can't understand, that that had not helped humanity. It had hurt humanity. He says in places that is the world any better by hiding this non-dualistic knowledge from them? Has the world been made better? People for thousands of years have been taught that they're weak, they're ignorant, they're sinful, uh, they're unworthy, and they, shouldn't, uh, they can't deal with, uh, with the truth. Has that made the world better? Look outside the windows, read the newspaper, look at television. The answer is obvious. It hasn't helped humanity. So Swamiji said he wanted to make an experiment. He wanted to make the knowledge of the self, that you are the infinite self. All knowledge is inside of you. All truth is inside of you. Uh, all reality is inside of you, not outside. Everything is inside of you. All power is inside of you. And then go forward and live your life. He said this knowledge, this knowledge, will make a fisherman a better fisherman. It'll make a lawyer a better lawyer. It'll make a student a better student. Uh, and eventually it will help them to realize the highest truth. Eventually. He didn't say that this will turn everybody into an instant spiritual aspirant of a high uh, level of fitness, adhikara. He said that it will help people wherever they are if they can once understand it. Because then you understand that no, reality is here. Truth is here. Power is here. Yes, I haven't been able to manifest it. Yes, I haven't been able to develop it. But everything that I need is right here. Uh, instead of feeling dependent, instead of feeling that all value is out there, our center of gravity is out there, everything real is out there, everything worthwhile is out there, everything uh, out there is good, and I'm just this empty little piece of dust of, uh, f lost floating in a vast universe. No, reality is inside. And so Swamiji, what power Sri Ramakrishna brought to the earth? Swamiji's task... And Swamiji had a separate task from Sri Ramakrishna. Otherwise, why did Swamiji need to come? If uh, there was no need for Swamiji, then uh, the Sri Ramakrishna was the avatara. He was the incarnation. He was enough. Why did he have to bring Swamiji and make him miserable and travel all over the world and go through all of those experiences he had to go through? Swamiji didn't need that. He was lost in samadhi, in his eternal samadhi, in his uh, natural realm among the seven rishis. Why did Sri Ramakrishna bring him? It was because Swamiji could do that which Sri Ramakrishna himself couldn't do. Sri Ramakrishna could do that which Swamiji couldn't do, so both of them were needed. Sri Ramakrishna generated that tremendous spiritual power, but Swamiji had the mind to look at the state of the world, and this also was Sri Ramakrishna's doing through Swamiji, but it was through Swamiji that it had to be done. Swamiji could look at the world and look at the condition of the world and see what the problem of the world was and what the medicine that the world, uh, uh, what, the medicine, what medicine it was that the world needed. He was the Vaidya, the doctor of the uh, world, who had to find the world Oshadam, the medicine that was necessary for the world. So he, because Swamiji was uh, educated in the modern sense, because he traveled around, because he looked at the human condition, he saw what was needed and how that power that Sri Ramakrishna had brought, how it could be applied for the use of humanity. 
That was his passion, to find, to bring the power of Sri Ramakrishna down and to give it to everyone. Swamiji was always afraid that that power which Sri Ramakrishna had brought would be locked up in a temple, controlled by priests or controlled by swamis or controlled by uh, who, whoever controls the temple. And people would come and make their offerings and get a blessing and go home and feel that, oh, uh, that's the best that I can do. No, Swamiji wanted the power of Sri Ramakrishna to be made available, available to everyone. And one of the things he wanted was for this teaching that all truth, all power, all reality is inside of you already. Everything is inside of you. For that to be the starting point for humanity. The idea that I'm a sinner, I'm weak, I'm unworthy, I'm just a miserable uh, human being. That's not natural. Children don't come into the world with that idea. Once, when I lived in San Diego, I was in San Diego, as Swami said in the introduction this morning. I was there longer than I've lived in any place in my whole life. That was only 13 years, but I've never lived anywhere 13 years uh, else for that long in my whole life. And so while I was there, I went through a period of uh, three, four years probably, when, when, whenever I get into the car to go somewhere, shopping or banking or whatever, I would turn on the radio and I became fascinated with uh, Christian radio stations, that is, fundamentalist Christian radio stations. Not because I was fundamentalist uh, at all, but because I found that it was fascinating to see the mentality, the way of thinking and so forth, trying to understand the mentality. So one day I uh, turned to the station which uh, was in Pasadena, far away from San Diego, but I picked it up that day. And so there was a uh, fundamentalist preacher on that I, I didn't, uh, didn't know. And so I just caught this part where he said, people say that, oh, look at the innocent baby. That's not an innocent baby. That's just an undeveloped sinner. <laughs> So even the ability to appreciate the innocence of a baby is not there. You know? <laughs> even the baby is an undeveloped, unrepentant sinner. So this idea that we are sinners, that we're not born with, that we're taught. And so if we're taught and schooled in the idea that you are weak, you are incapable, you are sinners, and so forth, then Swamiji said we can teach people from childhood that no, all power is inside of you. It's a question of learning how to manifest it. All knowledge is inside of you. It's a question of learning how to manifest it. And so Swamiji wanted to make this knowledge the starting place. Not all of the implications. You don't have to start with the idea that the world doesn't exist and all of that because the world is very real uh, to us right now. But to understand the reality of the self and to understand the reality of consciousness, then we have to understand something of this and then we can go back and find the practicality for us how do I practice this? How do I make this practical in my own life? Through my devotional practices, through my service, my karma yoga, through my meditation, and through, if I'm attracted to the path of knowledge, through the direct path, for me, the direct path of knowledge. I don't mean the path of knowledge is the direct path and the others are derivative, but no. For me, the path that I want to go on directly is path of knowledge, then fine, do that. But it's helpful to all of us to know that uh, the self is the center of the universe. The center of the universe is right here. Not the ego, but the center of the whole universe is right here. Your center also is right here. Or if you point to your heart, then my center is there too. Because we're if you point to your heart and I point to mine, we're pointing to the same point. It's the same point. It's only the mind which projects things out in space and makes us think 
that there's this division between us. And so this has great practicality. So uh, someone asked, now time is really up, so let me uh, just conclude. And if Swami says to take a question, I will, but uh, this I have to, uh, have to end with this, uh, at least. Someone asked, our life is so busy, we have so many things to do, how can we deal with these ideas? Yes, life is busy. And oftentimes, life is so busy, we don't have time to think hardly. We just have, we just have so much to do that we just have to keep running, just in order to keep from uh, falling by the wayside with uh, undone uh, responsibilities. We have to keep, uh, keep busy and uh, can't figure out a way to even think about these things. No. From time to time in life, we do have periods when we can't think. So use those times, and then you'll find that it begins to give meaning to you even in times when you're extremely busy, when you don't have time to sit down and carefully read and think about these things, that it begins to give meaning to everything. That if we run and run and run and run and do and do and do and do and fulfill people's and society's expectations for a whole lifetime, and then we drop dead, what's the use? What's the use? As people say, life sucks and then you die. <laughs> if that's all that life is for us, then what's the use? What's the use? Just running, 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 and then you drop dead. Then what was the purpose of it? So find time to think about things. Find time to reorient your perspective. And then you'll find that there are many things you can do, many responsibilities you can fulfill, but you can maintain, your pers uh, maintain a pr spiritual perspective. So in the midst of doing things, you are moving forward. You're not just on a treadmill, not just on a treadmill. As Swamiji said, these ideas were developed by the kings in ancient India. Kings who were at that time uh, 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 in charge of everything in their kingdom. They were extraordinarily busy lives, and yet they had time to develop the ideas of the non-dualistic Vedanta, as we find the Chandogya Upanishad and other Upanishads. That this was the as Sri Krishna calls it, the Raja Vidya in uh, the Gita, the kingly knowledge. And so uh, uh, I'll stop here and uh, so just express again my thanks to the Swami and to all of you for your patient uh, hearing. And uh, I enjoyed um, my being with you very much. And uh, so, Swami, should I take a question or should we just, uh, time is up? It's up to you. What is time? <laughs> well, there may not be a question, so let me see if there is a question. Okay, there's one here. Um, when you were talking about mercy um, and how the world disappears when at, at certain moments in our consciousness, I'm not sure how to word it. It sounds a lot like um, how babies from six to eight months till then they are they haven't developed. Yes. And it's not a lot like that. Yes. So are these babies better off than us? And are they going from a knowledge to ignorance? Uh, because we talk about it epistemologically, but there are actually, are, are we philosophically saying that they go from knowledge to ignorance? That's a very good question. Uh, so the baby seems to be in a higher state. And the baby seems to be in a state of uh, uh, natural purity. Uh, it, uh, it seems to be in a state of natural simplicity. 
The baby can't distinguish between its body and the external world. Earlier, than, by six months, yes, it can. But before that, when the baby is newborn, it doesn't know. It just sees a mass of sensation. It doesn't know. There's a time, because uh, I had younger uh, brothers and a, a younger sister, one of the delights in uh, seeing uh, babies is when they discover their, uh, their foot and they put it in their mouth like everything else. The, uh, the, the way that they experience everything is largely through the mouth and through the eyes. Right? Everything has to go into the mouth. And uh, so uh, uh, the baby state seems to be a higher state. The difference is that the baby's state is unconscious. The baby is not yet developed. And so all of these things will do. If the baby state were actually higher, the baby would remain in that state. It wouldn't come out of it. It's because it's not, it's in that state because it's not yet developed. Uh, so there are similarities. And that's why it's said that a sage becomes childlike. A sage doesn't become a child, but it becomes childlike because the child has natural characteristics that the sage develops consciously and intentionally and because he's gone through the whole circle and come to wisdom. And uh, so, yes, the children oftentimes uh, exhibit unusual wisdom and unusual understanding. Uh, and everyone who's been around children sees that. And once in a while, it's, uh, uh, amazing truths come out of the mouth of little kids. Uh, and that's because, in a certain way, they are closer to the truth. Uh, but they're closer to the truth in the same way that deep sleep is closer to the truth. Deep sleep is the time in our life when we're closest to the truth, but it does us no good, except that it gives us rest. Because we're uh, in that state, we're ignorant and we have no willpower to move towards the truth. We have to come back to this state of tension and uh, conflict and diversity and all of that in order to work our way to the undifferentiated truth. Would you say that it helps to imagine Yes. Yes, yes. It does, yes, and I do that myself sometimes. It does, it does help to think of that because we can go back to that with a knowing mind uh, rather than it being unconscious. And so like, just one other part of that and then I'll stop with the babies not knowing the difference between its body and the environment. It has no idea. We learn, as, uh, 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 while still babies, and as we grow up, we learn the distinction that if, you t if my mother touches my hand, I feel it, and if she touches the table, I don't feel it, and gradually I begin to find that uh, I'm at the extent of my skin. That's where, that's where I end. That's foolishness. We learn the wrong lesson. Not that the child doesn't have to be taught that, because otherwise the child can't function in the world. So it's something the child has to learn, but we spend our life undoing that. But we have to undo it in the right way. Why should I think that I end here? There's no good reason for that. Once Swami Vivekananda in San Francisco was talking about how uh, I'm, uh, we're one with everything, that, that I'm one with the whole universe. And a man in the audience said, well, Swamiji, if I'm one with everything, then what's the difference between me and a cabbage? And Swamiji said, stick a knife in your leg and you'll see the line of demarcation. <laughs> stick a knife in your leg, you feel it. You stick a knife in the cabbage, you don't feel it. Why should I think that my existence terminates with my nerve endings? Why should I be so tied up with my tactile nerve endings? Why should I think this is, uh, I see all of this, I see the whole universe, the whole world of the, the ocean of the, the uh, world of matter. Why should I not think that is my body? Why do I just think that my nerve endings are so important that I end here? 
and the rest of the world, which is not me, starts from here and goes out. No, that's foolishness. The baby learns it so that they can operate in a physical body. We have to unlearn it and learn to see that, no, the whole world is myself. This is not me. So, okay, another question here? Okay, if it's on that, I'll go, go here and then I'll come to you and then we'll stop. Huh? That, this will be, okay, go ahead. Yes, and that I had wanted to do, but again, there wasn't time. There wasn't a time even to get beyond uh, about seven verses. So uh, uh, to make it experiential that we do, one, uh, one thing to do is to understand and think deeply. Uh, we have to understand the power of understanding. Why do I see the world that I see? Only reason I see the world as I see it is because of habit. I'm used to seeing a world that looks like this. It's, oh, the, the universe is nothing but a universe of habit. What are the laws of physics, the laws of chemistry? Uh, those are nothing but habits, habits of the universe. It's the way that the universe has a habit of acting. And the universe is the universe of my perception. So these are habits that... Uh, and so the power of thinking is that if I understand these ideas deeply, in time... The power of truth is that once you're convinced something is true, you can never give it up. It'll always be there, even if you try to give it up because you want to do other things. It'll be there gnawing at you. It won't allow you. So Swamiji said, I shall compare truth to an, uh, a corrosive substance. It, through a hard substance, it uh, burns its way through slowly, through a soft uh, surface quickly, but burn its way through it will. Uh, so understanding. Then meditating. And one of the things I had wanted to do was to give some meditations which help with understanding this. And so I'll just describe extremely briefly. We won't do a experiential session because there's not time, but very briefly. And that is this idea of asti, uh, isness. Everything that I see is. That is, it exists. If it doesn't exist, then it's not. There's, there's no such thing as non-existence, except in a conceptual framework. Non-existence is, by definition, that which isn't, and so it uh, doesn't exist. So everything has existence. And so if I just sit quietly and try to feel the isness of everything around me, my body, my thoughts, the objects around me, the world, the sound, but emphasizing just the isness, because is, isness, existence, is what is common to everything. And that existence is Brahman. If I can feel, and we can all feel it, we can all feel just the ocean of isness, meaning the ocean of presence, the presence of everything, the ocean of isness, the ocean of presence. If we can just feel that, emphasizing the presence, the isness of things, and not the particular qualities, the qualities are still there, but I'm we're emphasizing in our meditation the isness, then I'm having a direct intuition, not the direct, not yet the direct realization but a direct intuition of Brahman, because existence is Brahman alone. And insofar as I get an intuition of Brahman, I am getting a direct intuition of the reality of Brahman. And eventually that uh, can lead to the realization of Brahman. This is present even in Roman Catholic theology of St. Thomas Aquinas. It's present in Sufi theology of Islam also. And this idea that everything that is, is the existence of the divine, because there is no existence other than the existence of the divine. But Vedanta says that that existence is me. That's who I am. And so that's me. Another way is to emphasize the bhati part, the consciousness part. 
to, uh, to just to feel that I'm aware of the whole universe. Even when my eyes are closed, I feel the presence of the world around me and I hear uh, uh, sounds and so forth. I'm aware of the world around me. Where am I aware of it? I'm aware of it in my consciousness. So let me just feel that I'm conscious of everything. I hear a sound, that's just a vibration in my consciousness. I feel a touch, that's just a vibration in my consciousness. I see an image, I see a thought, it's just a vibration in my consciousness. And so then I begin to get a feeling for what consciousness itself is. So like that, there are meditations which help us with this. So now, the last question. So Maharaj, based on your uh, explanation of matter, can we conclude matter and maya is the same thing? Uh, no, uh, matter is a product of maya. Uh, so uh, the maya is that which, uh, which is this, uh, the source of everything, including matter. So matter is a, is, a, is a manifestation of maya. That we can say, yes, yes. So um, where do we experience maya directly? Of course, everything, all that we experience is the mixture of maya plus consciousness. But when we go into deep sleep, we uh, are not aware of anything. But what we're aware of is the, uh, the night of ignorance, the darkness of ignorance, the darkness of forgetfulness. That's the source of our phenomenal being. It's because of that darkness of ignorance that then I can project worlds of dream and waking state. But the, the primal state of my individual being, the source of my individual being, thinking that I'm an individual, is experienced in deep sleep. It's that uh, lack of awareness of my real nature, which we experience directly in deep sleep. We experience the cloud of ignorance which covers my true nature. Uh, that is the closest we get to the direct experience of maya itself. We're experiencing maya in the individual sense, ajnana, uh, but it's the same thing as the cosmic maya on the individual scale. And just to make that a little more understandable, if at twilight I see the stump of a tree, Swami Vivekananda gives this example, I see the stump of a tree at twilight and I'm waiting for a friend and so I see the stump and I can't see exactly what it is. There's enough light to see that there's something in the distance uh, by, by the street, but I can't see what it is. And I think, oh, maybe that's my uh, friend who's, who was uh, uh, going to uh, come to see me. Uh, and a thief sees the same uh, stump and thinks, oh, that may be a policeman, I better run. We're projecting different things onto the stump. So first of all, there has to be a stump there. We have to see something in order to uh, mistake it for something else. But we can't see it clearly because then we won't mistake it. If, I can clear, if there's enough light and my eyes are good enough that I can see a stump, then I'm not going to think, oh, it's my friend. So there has to be darkness for me to mistake it. Then I can project the idea of my friend or the idea of a policeman or whatever. Uh, so Vedanta says that there's the darkness of ignorance, which is the avarna shakti, the, the covering power of darkness, which covers what reality is. And only when reality is covered can we project a different vision through uh, 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 vikshepa shakti, the, the power of projection. So it sounds complicated partly because of Sanskrit terminology and all of that. Actually the idea is easy. That in dreamless sleep where we're experiencing no thing, just a darkness, we're experiencing the covering over the self, that which hides the self. And it's that which allows us then to dream and then to see uh, this world and other worlds and other realms that we may experience after dying, uh, that we may go to. 
but there has to be first that covering. So, okay. So again, thank you all. Oh. Does it go to give more? Both, uh, uh, both uh, give love and uh, peace of mind. So I wouldn't say that uh, non-dualism gives more. It depends on our temperament. Uh, depends on our temperament. Both give uh, peace of mind and give strength. If I surrender to God, I'm surrendering to the all-powerful. So I'm surrendering to the, the, the all-powerful, all-knowing. And so I'm, I'm surrendering to that which uh, uh, has no obstacle which has no, uh, no enemy, no power which can act against it. And if I depend on the self, if I seek the self, I'm depending on the same reality, just in a different way. So both are good. Well, Swamiji felt that if we learn to think that all strength is inside of me, yes, that will give us more strength. And so that, uh, and uh, uh, it will give us more, more strength and more peace of mind. But we can do that both in a devotional way and in a, uh, and in a knowledge way. So yes, it's founded on non-dualism, yes. Non-dualism will give us more strength and will give us more uh, uh, peace of mind. But non-dualism can be approached in a devotional way and in a knowledge-oriented way. And both are good. And that's what I'll talk about tomorrow.